Welcome to Dwelling in Magic. My name is Angie, and I am so excited for a couple reasons. Number one, I have the Roe Family Singers on with me today, and it's just such a beautiful and honest conversation. I think you're really going to be inspired by it, and you definitely are going to be inspired to go see them perform live. But I'm so honored for their time, and I'm so amazed that I'm on episode 10 of this whole podcast journey. I cannot tell you how touched I am, how blown wide open my heart is by sitting and conversing with all these beautiful people. It's really cool. So thank you for joining in this fun. Sit back and enjoy this dynamic duo. I am delighted to be sitting here this morning with the very talented and fun Kim and Quillen Rowe. This dynamic duo are the husband and wife behind the amazing and beloved Rowe Family Singers. Their band is so much fun and through the years of endless and consistent gigging they are masters of their craft and have sang played and clogged their way into the hearts of so many of us here in the twin cities they are the hillbilly old-timey darlings of our town and nearly everyone has seen them at the farmer's market global market or festival or one of their weekly gigs at the 331 bar a little northeast minneapolis gem i am a big fan First of Quillen when he was in Accident Clearinghouse all those years ago, and then of both of them ever since they formed their family band 13 years ago? Uh, 20. 20. 20 years ago? <laughs> no, I think I was at one of your very first performances. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But you were on the side stage at the Turf Club, and I think you guys had mentioned that night. It was one of Kim's first time performing live. Our very, one of them. Our, very, our first two shows were at Lee's Liquor Lounge. Uh, that was it was a tribute to Johnny Cash and June Carter Cash after they had both passed away in 2003, and then either later that year or early the next year it was a Hank Williams tribute, mm-hmm. and so we did that. But I'm sure you're right. If I, we're at the Turf Club, that was uh, we played before Charlie. Yeah, oh, that's right. We used to do Charlie Parr gave us tons of like there was a point in our career where we would have broken up because we were just kind of dispirited. But then Charlie started giving us all these opening shots, and so we were opening for him all over Minnesota. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it was, yeah, I'd forgotten about that, that it would have been, we'd done that at the turf and it would have been the side stage. Yes. Was there some little song about roller skating around heaven? I don't even know, but do you recall, is there a roller skating around heaven song? (laughs) Not around heaven. Not around heaven, but it's brand new key by Melanie Sapka. Anyway, you sounded so great. It may be a little bit nervous back then, but, but no, you, but your voice is so beautiful. So it didn't matter if you're (laughs) nervous at all. She has won the best female vocalist in the Twin Cities. I remember when you won that and I was so excited for you. But fast forward to now, after years, 20 years, of owning yourself as a musician, she is a force. I was lucky enough to be an extra on their video shoot for one of their new songs, an anthem for all women. Is it Loretta Lynn Blues? Yes, that's what it's called. So freaking great, I can't wait And of course he wants his dinner hot and a smile upon my lips. Well, it's hot with a baby on my apron strings, another on my hip. Cause the first one wakes at three o'clock and don't fall asleep till five. Another wakes just after that and cries and cries and cries. And don't forget the oldest boy where he's growing like a weed. And the youngest one pulling at my blouse, looking for a feed. Not hunt, not baby child, red of Lynn. I'll spell it out, it's W-O-M-A-N It's not much to expect, same respect that you give a man 
stage now, confident and a total badass. And Quillen has always sparkled and shined and brought so much joy to the stage. Really, it's so you can even see his dimples through that big beard. <laughs> <laughs> Um, some years ago, I even got the chance to sing with Quillen when we were both in the Bloodwash Band at the House of Mercy, and I just loved that. It felt like such an honor after watching you in the Twin Cities for so many years, and it was so much fun having you both at church. So I'm going to make you sing something with me later, a little gospel song or something. <laughs> but what I admire about these two is that you've dedicated yourselves so fully to your craft, both visual art and, and to your music. I remember when your babies were strapped on to Kim on her back or when you played around town. And I know they've traveled around with you to festivals around the country. It's just what an interesting and adventurous life you've created for your family. It's so cool. So I'm just so grateful to be here with you guys today. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you for having we're, me. We're grateful to for your interest. Yes, thank you. Are you kidding me? Everyone's interested in you too, in case you didn't know it. But <laughs> but tell me, like, where, did you both grow up in a musical way or musical family? Uh, I grew up, my dad would play guitar, and I would sit by his feet and sing along. He'd play a little piano, and I'd just sing along with him. And uh, my grandma, my mom's mom, would sing songs, old-time songs around the house. and so A lot of gospel. A lot of gospel. Yeah. So you were always singing. Yeah. Yeah. And karaoke. Karaoke. Okay. What was your go-to? Oh, boy. Or did you uh, have Dixie a Dixie Chicks. Dixie Chicks was a good one. You sang a lot of them, and you had a, you were famous for your was it Billie Jean? You had a Michael Jackson routine. You did. It's like she had the whole thing, the routine. She had the, like the dance moves, the hands, everything. And the best part was I wasn't drinking. It was all sober because everyone else was drunk, so it was easy to do. I suppose so. <laughs> that is so great. I love that so much. Did you do wide open spaces? That Dixie oh, Chicks on? Yeah. Uh-huh. What were you did that one and Martina McBride? I did and uh... and then what's the that that sad one? The one about under the bleachers. The oh. war one, oh. you did that one too. Yes, the soldiers coming soldiers. home. I forget <gasps> yeah. what that one's called. Oh, I know that one. Yeah. That one gets me every time. Now they're the chicks. Now they're the chicks. Quillen, what about you? Did you grow up? A lot of music? lot of music in our family. Um, my mom and dad both. My mom played piano and sang all the time uh, around the house, and my dad sang not not as much, but he he sings too, and. He had a really eclectic record collection, which helped a lot. I was exposed to a lot of different stuff from all over the place. I mean, he just he had very eclectic tastes from the Ink Spots, you know, which was which was big doo-wop, early doo-wop, to stuff like the Devil's Anvil, which was Middle Eastern rock and roll, hmm. and. Um, the biggest ones that we listened to the most, though, were uh, Doc Watson and uh, the Red Clay Ramblers. Red Clay Ramblers were, uh, I think now it's pretty easy for me to see this far into my musical career, they are the blueprint for what a, what I think a band should be. Hmm. Because they were they were an old-time band, so it was, it was music based on clawhammer banjo and fiddle and piano and upright bass but they did everything they they didn't just do fiddle tunes they didn't they weren't an old-time band in that sense they they wrote their own stuff that was They're a lot of fun yeah tremendously creative and then they did um they did tin pan alley stuff and they did blues and and yeah it was just they were just all over the place and i, I think that that very much between that specific band and then just the stuff that i was exposed to I've never been comfortable in any of my bands saying we are this because that's what we are today. 
mm-hmm. you know, and like if you hire us to do a country dance, we'll play country dance songs all night and we'll love it. But if you need a square dance band, we can do that too. And if you need a rock band, we can do that too. And it's all part of the same the thing. It's mm-hmm. all part of the same thing. So anyways, back to the question. My mom's family, uh, my granddad, I love telling this story. My granddad, So my mom is from southeastern Iowa, from a little community called Washington, Iowa. And her people had come up from Lebanon, Missouri, and over from uh, Kentucky and Tennessee. And my, gr- my granddad, her dad, was the last of, of a long line of uh, Appalachian and Ozark fiddlers. Mm. And uh, the family story is that uh, my great-granddad, Theron, who apparently was an absolute drunken bastard, <laughs> was, a, was a gifted fiddler. And he had the family fiddle that had been passed down. And when my granddad and his seven siblings were born, none of them had any musical ability. And so we don't know what happened to the fiddle. I, we have a pretty good guess what happened to it. It was either in a fire or it was sold for, for booze. But um, my granddad still really loved that music. So when I started playing in Axon Clearinghouse, when I, was doing, when I wasn't doing punk and heavy metal anymore, I was playing country, he was really excited because all of a sudden we had this thing in common. Because and I had never known this about my granddad that he liked it so much. But he had grown up; he was, the, you know, he was absolutely the target demographic for the Grand Ole Opry in its heyday. And mm. so I specifically remember him saying, "Oh, you you like this music? So you like Hank Williams? So you must like you must like the skillet liquors and the fruit jar drinkers." And I literally like I was I was eighteen. <laughs> I I thought like, "Oh, my granddad's senile. He's making stuff up." Like. And of course, I've come to find out as I get more into old times specifically that, you know, he's talking about the greats. Like he was talk he was listening to the people that I would later come to listen to and, and, and worship and idolize in the genre. And I didn't even know it at the time. So I spent a lot of time with my grandparents in summers in particular. We'd spend a lot of time down there in Iowa and my granddad would often be the one to, to put me and my cousins to bed. And uh, he would just he would sing all these old mountain songs that he grew up with. So, like the first time I heard the Crawdad song was from my granddad, and the first time I heard Froggy Went a Courtin' was from my granddad, and a lot of other stuff like that. So I think that I think that even though my musical path has wandered all over the place, it was kind of inevitable that I would, I would end up in the back in the folk tradition because it was what I was exposed to so heavily from my grandparents and my parents. That's really cool. I feel lucky, you know, and it's it also makes me feel like, you know, our girls are, are teenagers now, and they listen to, they just they you know they listen to popular music. They listen. Like Taylor to, Swift? Are they Swifter? Swifter? They're not huge no. Swifties. No, not. I mean, they like her, but she's not. Yeah. You know, and I feel like a. I've listened to everything, mm-hmm. you know, and there's like they turned us on to Harry Styles and Lizzo and. Uh, Olivia Rodrigo, like I mean, those, those are not names that I, I maybe Lizzo, but others I don't think we would have listened to if it wasn't for them. And I genuinely like, I really enjoy Harry Styles. Me too. I really oh enjoy Lizzo. I really that latest album, cut those songs. Yeah, oh, I love them. Super yeah. catchy. So your girls are exposing you to a lot of different yeah. stuff. Yeah, and you know, I, I think that if I didn't have my own experience with, so my my very first bands were heavy metal bands when I was fourteen, and then. Those kind of segued into punk and hardcore bands. Specifically, remember, so we had uh, Jeff Tranberry and I had gone to high school together. And, and then we met Mike Brady. Uh, Jeff was a year ahead of me, so I, we met Mike 
my freshman year of college. We all went to college together. And we and Mike and I started in October of 92. We started Accident Clearinghouse. And it was just the two of us in Mike's bedroom in his parents' house in Andover. And uh, I think we just had one or two songs. Mike's output was insane. He just... Ne- like he was always writing music, always, always, always. From the moment I met him, he just mm-hmm. always had new songs, and he had you know three bands going at a time because there was so much creativity just pouring out of that guy. And so we started Accident Clearinghouse, but then, and I don't exactly remember why, but we kind of tabled it and started this this hardcore band called Wingnut. And so that was that was Mike and I, and then Dan Gerber, who we met. Our freshman year of college, also, so we're, we you know, were all going to the college of it was Associated Arts back then, and then Wingnut added. Eventually, we added Jeff Tranberry into that band on second guitar, and I remember very specifically saying to the guys one day, like, I'm just, I'm not angry enough to do this this punk music, but I really like this Accident Clearinghouse project that we'd started, and so basically. Accident Clearinghouse, the first iteration of Accident Clearinghouse was Wingnut with acoustic instruments. So it was Jeff and I and Mike and Dan. Mm-hmm. And I think because of that experience where, you know, I had spent years and years and years playing heavy metal and, and hardcore and punk, and then without even trying, just kind of naturally fell back into folk music, you know, country and, and old time. I, you know, I don't worry about the girls, you know, yeah. staying away. I mean, if they if they decide they want, A, if they want to be musicians, that actually would scare me more than anything else because it's a terrible life. But <laughs> but whatever they want to do would be great because I know that we've given them, just like our our families have, you know, we've given them this, this foundation to work on. Like Oni will just pick up her ukulele or go play the piano just without... You know, like I was, I had to be forced to practice. Mm-hmm. Oni wants to practice. She just will, you know. She, she picked up piano on her own. Did she really? I showed her just a couple. I don't play piano, but I learned a couple things, and she took that and just went with it. Oh, and she goodness. loves uh, finding songs that she knows, you know, from popular artists, and she'll just either play that on the piano or uke. It's so pretty I'm, cool. That's really cool. And Oni's how old? Twelve. Twelve. Mm-hmm. And they both have beautiful voices, and so it's, it's oh my gosh, it's so much fun. They did that this morning in the bathroom. They will start singing, and one will harmonize with the other. It's just, oh, it makes my heart happy. Can you guys like have a family jam? Will they ever sit and sing with you or do anything like if, that? If we ask them to, no. Yes, okay. If, if it just magically happens, yes. Like in a car? We have silly little games we'll do with... <laughs> Yeah. It's usually me that starts it. Like the beatbox game? Yeah. You start a beat and then someone has to add to it, or like a tone, where you guys generate a tone. Yeah. Mm. So one of us will say a C note, and not necessarily a C note. And yeah, it's a good time. That sounds really fun. <laughs> they used to they used to get up and sing with us, and Oni would clog with, with Kim. I used to do it a couple times. Yep. But... And now, you know, now they're they're teenagers, so they're embarrassed. And I get yeah. that, you know. It's, yeah. It's... What happens yep. to a lot of them? Well, my 10-year-old already is like, Mom, in the donut shop this morning, don't dance to that. You know, so <laughs> like, we're the only ones in here. Yeah. Really? Okay. <laughs> and I'm sure none of the other people in here have ever danced in public before. No. No one has ever no. done that. God forbid you have a little joy in yeah. your day and want to move <laughs> to this song. So how long did Accident Clearinghouse, how long were you guys together playing so around? Mike and I started in 92. And then when we all, Jeff graduated in 95 and, and 
Mike, Dan, and I graduated in 96. And so when we graduated is when we really started. We had been playing shows that whole time, and we'd been recording that whole time. But 96 is when we put our first record out and started actively going out to get shows. And uh, from 96 to 2000, we were very active. And then the end of 2000, we kind of put it on hold. Uh, but then, right before then, uh, Dave Campbell had joined the band, and he had replaced Dan Gerber on Washboard. And Dave had, and he's Dave is still part of the music community. You know, he has his band El No, and uh, he had a a Ween tribute band that he did for a while. But Dave is one of these people who, when he he has boundless energy, and when he he's in a project, he like puts all of that energy into the project. So even though we were kind of at this place where Accident Clearinghouse was, you know, kind of on hold, kind of on hiatus. All of a sudden, Dave is there, and he's like, "No, we're going to keep playing shows," and and so we did. We I think we played till two thousand eight or nine. I think so. Because you got to see us, um, like you got to go to some of our New yeah. Year New Year's shows. Yeah. I freaking loved those New Year's shows. <laughs> that was the best. Yeah. And you played at the three thirty one club a couple. Of days. Oh, that's right. I forgot about. Remember that. the uh, the PA band? The PA, yes. I forgot about that. How yes. did you guys? How did you two meet? Did you want to keep going with Accident Clearing House? No, that's fine. No, yeah. Uh, uh, we were both preschool teachers, and he was my assistant. Really? Ooh. Yeah. It was nap time. Whenever he was in my room, he came during nap time, and he'd be rubbing, you know, we'd rub uh, the backs yes. of the little ones, and and he would slowly be, he'd be rubbing a back, and then he'd fall asleep. And so <laughs> I just kept looking at him going, oh, he's so cute, and... I ended up asking him out. And you did? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I put a note in his car. You did? I did. I said I'd love to make you dinner sometime. He never responded to me. Really? <laughs> so I think it was a week, two weeks later, I did it again. Hey, I'd love to make you dinner sometime. And he didn't respond. And I thought, oh, my God, did I put it in the wrong car? Yes. <laughs> you know, because I had my name on there, my phone number. And finally he came into my room. And all of my preschoolers, all of them knew that I had this huge crush on him. So as soon as he came in, they all went, ooh. And they started doing the Kim and Quillen sitting in a tree. I'm like, shh, stop, just be quiet. Just read. But he asked me out. What took you so long after those first notes? I had just gotten out of two pretty serious relationships. I see. I had Mm -hmm. been, I had been engaged and that had fallen apart, and then I had kind of rebounded into, into uh, another relationship that I was really, like, really into, and then I and that one had fallen apart, and I had finally realized that I needed some space for me. Mm-hmm. I just I just needed to be. I didn't know who Quillen single was. Like I, you know, I I knew who Quillen in a relationship was, but I didn't know who I was anymore, and I just. I, Kim was fantastic, and we like we we certainly hung out all the time. Like we were all in a in a big group of teacher friends that mm. we all hung out, and I liked her. But I just was like, I don't. It wasn't I, the time. I don't want a relationship at all. I don't you know want anything. So it was just easiest just to pretend I didn't get the notes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was actually engaged to be married when I first met Quillen, and I I um I it's actually because of Quillen that I broke up my engagement not to be with him no but the thought of oh my gosh there's someone out there like him mm-hmm. and it just I don't know I just figured there's there's 
I can't be with this one person I was with because there's something else out there for me. I can be happier. And then, I think after about a few months, maybe was it six months, I don't know, that's when I'm like, well, why not Quillen? That's when I wrote the note. Uh-huh. Notes. Notes. <laughs> Notes. Oh, my gosh. How pay- I can... I. It's right there with you, like, it's not hearing anything. <laughs> but then you finally came in, so you asked her out. Yeah. Went to Billy Johnson's Roadshow at the Fine Line. Fine line yep. Oh, my god. But gosh. the way the band started was kind of was kind of similar. Very similar. Very similar. You know, I kept writing notes to him to ask him out, and he didn't reply. But with the band, I said, hey, we should start a band. He kept telling me it was a bad idea. You did. You I, didn't. I did. You just couldn't see how that would work. Go I just well. didn't. He should have that... known from when I was asking him out the first time. Yeah, <laughs> I just. You know, I. I just thought that like mixing work, and and home was not a good idea. Yeah. But, but other couples did it. Other couples did it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a Sun, like Sonny and Cher, or Ike and Tina Turner. <laughs> okay. Well, they did. But then John and June. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, if they hadn't, if if, if uh, this is morbid, but if they hadn't passed away, there might not be a real family singers. It was um, so accident. That was two thousand three. Accident Clearinghouse was, you know, as I'd said, was on kind of a hiatus, and they, you know, so June passed away that spring, and then Johnny died in August or September, and so Lee's was putting together Lee's Liquor Lounge was putting together a tribute to them that fall, October of two thousand three. And they called and asked if Accident Clearinghouse could play it, and I know that we couldn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I really wanted to do it because Johnny Cash and June Carter's family, you know, her and all of her family's music, the Carter family, had been so influential by that point on, on my own music and my own writing that I really wanted to do this. And it was literally, you know, uh, spark, not spark of the moment. What is, what's that expression? Spur of the moment. Spur of the moment, mm-hmm. thank you. It was literally spur of the moment. I'm on the phone with the booker. <laughs> and they're asking if we can do this, and I'm saying no, and then I'm saying, wait, I think I have a new band. And so Kim was, I've told this story so many times, Kim was, was in the other in the other room watching TV. I had no idea. You know, this is phone. before cell phones, so, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm in the kitchen. The phone is on the leash attached to the wall. Yes. And I said, Those days. and I literally, you know, just cover the phone up and holler to Kim, hey, do you still want to start a band together? Literally, that's, that I is said, it. Of course I do. And 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 that's all I needed. So I told the booker, I was like, "All right, I've got this new band," and I made the name up right then. I said, "Call us the." And I want so Row Family Singers is a tribute the name to the Carter family, and then Carter family Row family. Then I added singers at the end because one of my favorite bands at the time in the Twin Cities was a band called the Deadly Nightshade Family Singers, and so I just threw singers on the end of it as a as a little nod to, to to our friends in that band. Oh, that's so cool. And then that was it. What did you sing for the tribute show? We did Hello Stranger and Jackson. Jackson. Yep. I think that's it. I think just two. Yeah. And had you been singing together, like, you know, fooling around the house and singing, playing it all? Karaoke. Karaoke. I think I sang on your solo album like a backup. Mm -hmm. Just, Just one song. That's about it. With a whole bunch of other people. How? So how did that tribute show go? Was it fun? Did you like it, Kim? It was... Well, this was my first time performing without um, a karaoke TV screen in front of me. <laughs> so when I did karaoke, my, you know, I'd hang on to the mic with one hand, and my other hand was in my back pocket, and I would just be reading off the screen because I was just terrified of other people. 
I was doing Billie Jean, completely different. But <laughs> it was, yeah, so it was my first show, just both hands were in a pocket. There's a picture of mm-hmm. us, and it's just, I was terrified. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, I, every time I sang for, like, the first five years, my I had no idea what to do with my hands. Yeah, I would do the same thing. Stick my, cross them behind my back. Mm-hmm. You That's know? why I play the auto harp, actually. Oh, Because yes, the two of you... us used to sit down all the time, and my hands would just, I would sit on them because I didn't know what to do with them. Do I... I felt awkward. And so I said, cool, and I need something to do with my hands. I just don't know what to do. And we still worked with, with the school district, and we were friends with the uh, music teacher. And he said, hey, do you have any auto harps? And she said, yeah, actually, I'm getting rid of some because I don't know what to do with them. No one was playing them anymore. And so we said, can we borrow it? She said, you can have it. Oh my gosh. So the one I played today is still that one. That's kind of all these little bits of the story of it's Ser- like serendipity. would you like this? Yes, here it is. I need something to do with my hands. Here you go. That's really cool. Yeah. So then from that point on, were you playing often or just dipping your toes in? It what do you think? It feels like we've been playing all the time forever. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I think when we first started out though it was cuz I was in school also. That's right. I was in college, mm. and so I remember having to talk to teachers saying, hey, I know there's a big project due this day, but I also have a show. And so I remember... They were really good about that. They were really, really good about I mean, that. It was, and I think it was because it was very clear that you were a dedicated student and you weren't trying to get out yeah. of stuff. I was a non-traditional student, and I think it was, I was being very adult about it. <laughs> <laughs> and I think they appreciated that. Oh, yeah. yeah. but So you caught the bug, though. You really, I, yeah, Something I was, felt good about it. I was really nervous. For the longest time, I was really nervous, and I think it was it maybe the five-year mark that I finally realized, huh, I could do this. Mm-hmm. I was, I was, I was getting more comfortable, mm-hmm. and now, psh, psh. I used to get butterflies, but I don't anymore. No, maybe on the Grand Old Opry stage, we'll it's venue. it's rare that I get butterflies, but yeah, I think if it was a big, big stage like that, yeah. We've the biggest audience we've ever played to is six thousand. Where was that? That was the Presbyterian? Yes. Presbyterian Triennium. Yes. Mm-hmm. So the, the Presbyterian Church has a, a Triennium. Every three years, they have a big a get-together uh, for their youth. And so some, I don't remember how it happened, but somehow we got hired for this thing as we weren't the main band because they had like a, a worship band that was a bunch of uh, Nashville was cats. The band. We, was that it? Really? Yeah, we met. We met some wow. the jug band. Uh, the um, the battle yes jug band battle down south though somehow we got we got hooked up with this thing so there was a there was like a main worship band and that was all like Nash, Nashville session players and then for some reason they wanted a second band and so they brought us in and so we would open for the for that band and then we did a we did what's called a big circle square dance where you li- it's it's a square dance but there are literally hundreds of people. It's not, you know, it's not just one room full of, of squares. It's It was outside in the people. park. It was amazing. It was super fun. That sounds really cool. Yeah. It it was super cool. It was it was nuts. And there is it's weird, you know, you up to that point, my experience had been I probably played to hundreds of people, maybe even a thousand. It's some you know, maybe maybe there was something that big. But you read about your heroes, you know, playing these multi-thousand, you know, multi-thousands of audience members. And 
I don't know how you relate to the audience at that size. It's like the audience stops being individuals and becomes one, one thing, one person. And it's a different, it's, I didn't know how to relate to the audience. Like I wasn't spooked, but I didn't, I also didn't know what to do. I'm pretty, I've been doing, like Kim said, I've been doing this long enough that I'm, I'm pretty unflappable. And even when I'm shook, you know, as a professional that you don't show it, you know, like you never, the audience wants to see you have succeed and wants to, wants you to, wants, they're there to have fun. Mm -hmm. And so they want you to have fun. And like, and, and so you're, you're doing everyone a disservice if you're like, you make a mistake and you're like, oh, you make a face or, you know, oh, I messed up so bad. Or you like apologize to the audience. I'm sorry that was so bad. Like you do that when you're young, when you're starting out, but you learn the audience doesn't want to hear that. And so when you're playing, you know, in a situation like that, where this is the first time and the last time, we've never played to a crowd that big since then. But they, had their, they lit up their phones. Oh, my God, that was awesome. Oh but, you, you know, it's like mm-hmm. it definitely was – I just didn't know what to do. Like I didn't know how to relate to the audience. But it's come in handy. You know, you have, so I've been playing – now, um, you know, the Rowe family has been playing bigger festivals and things, which is really nice. And then I've been playing with a couple other bands that have, that have kind of built-in crowds that are, that are bigger. And so I think, like you were just saying earlier, the idea of, you know, these, these kind of serendipitous things just kind of falling into place. I think that experience, you know, prepped us for these later experiences that we're having. Like now, I would, you know, I think if we played to 10,000 people, we would just crush it. Oh, I bet you did. I bet you crushed it anyway. All their faces melted. Just like that. Just <laughs> you guys have the best showmanship ever. It's so much fun to be... If you had someone in town and you wanted to show them a good time, you'd go to your show. Because you guys just make Thank everyone you. feel so happy. Thank you. That's the goal. Yeah. I mean, it really it is. It's it's you... <laughs> art, you know, art, is, art is, a, is a crazy business. You know. You, you know, you make your... You do your, your mosaics and... You're making something that is this beautiful expression of, of you, Angie, the artist. And then you put it in this place and then you leave, mm-hmm. right? And it exists without you. And that's, that is a, that's a different experience. But you also have the experience of being a performer. You know, you have Angie and the Ranch Hands and you sang with House of Mercy Band and Bloodwash Band for so long. And so you have this experience too where you know what it's like to be you you understand the creative process from both sides and and you also understand the end result and it's it's different um and i forgot where i was going with all that it was super insightful whatever it was <laughs> but it, it it's the goal is different like it, when you make your mosaics when i draw a drawing and i put it out there you know the the feedback is is can be instantaneous but mm-hmm. then it drops off and a live performance is very much like that. You know, you've got the applause. If you're doing your job, you've got the applause. And, you know, and maybe you're really lucky and people are tipping you or making requests or, you know, they come up to you and they tell you how much they enjoyed it at the end. And that's, that's, that is the art form. Like, that, that's what it is. Like, that's, the recordings are wonderful. And I love being in the recording studio, but... the recording is like your murals, Mm -hmm. you know, that I'm not there when they listen to the recording. And so I'm doing it for the, for that immediate, that immediate feedback. Mm -hmm. And that's what uh, feeds the artistic process for me. So it's flattering to hear you say that we do it well, because that's, that's literally, that's the goal. It's like, do you remember the movie, um, Great Balls of Fire? Dennis Quaid played 
uh, Jerry Lee Lewis. Oh, I don't know if I saw it. There's a scene in it, because I was a, it was a huge Rockabilly fan, and I really love Jerry Lee Lewis. There's a scene in there where Jerry Lee Lewis, and this is apparently this really happened, he, they're in, he's in, on tour in England, and he has to open for Chuck Berry. And he's so irate that he is the opener and not Chuck Berry that he lights the piano on fire at the end of his set. Like he's playing Great Balls of Fire and he, he douses it in kerosene and lights it on fire, slams the lid and walks off the stage and he says, follow that to Chuck <laughs> Berry. And I took that and I, and I said, you know, if that's what entertainment is, because again, remember, I up until this point, I was playing in heavy metal and punk bands and you don't have... That is very much a, a a responsive crowd. Like if you're doing well, you know it, and if you're not doing well, you also know it. You know you get spit on and stuff thrown at you and stuff like that, <laughs> which is which which is normal. It's not so much Would anymore. Would you like me to light my auto harp on fire? Well, so <laughs> some days I'd like to. The point though is that like <laughs> it's it's visceral, and it's like mm-hmm. and it's and it's about a response. It's about provoking. And in punk, I would say provoking is the right word. It's provoking a response. And what we do now, it's the same kind of thing. It's like we want you to make you feel something. We want the audience to feel something. And I took that lighting the piano thing on fire, and it's like that's that's what your job is on stage. Like it ha- you have to make it impossible for the next act to go on stage. Mm-hmm. And and that doesn't mean being a jerk. That doesn't mean being rude. It doesn't mean trash talking him to me it means doing the best job you possibly can so that whoever comes after you could be anyone it could be the avet brothers it could be doc watson and they're still going to have trouble like going on stage after that like that's that is always my goal well you guys hit that goal and when you kim comes out and clogs oh my gosh that's just the best okay now how long have you been clogging nine years maybe i think nine yeah Let's just say nine. Nine years. Were you just inspired by some of the other people out there doing it? And like, oh, I've got to yeah. try this. It's, when I was in ninth grade, I took a dance class, uh, tap, jazz, and ballet, and I loved it. It was so much fun to just be able to use my body to make music. It was just a lot of fun. And yeah, it wasn't until we were in the band and I saw the Wild Goose Chase Cloggers mm-hmm. and some other people, and I thought, ooh. I wonder if I could do that. And so I just kept looking up videos on Google and... And you taught yourself. Yeah. That's so With cool. my babies in my arms while they napped. Oh I would just gosh. watch videos. That is really sweet. Yeah. And you're really good now. Thank you. Do you keep trying to learn new... I do. I, I do. Um, I watch a lot of hip-hop videos because why not? Yes. I'm dancing by myself. I can do whatever the heck I want to. <laughs> Yes. Well, you had a good you had good mentors in the Wild Goose Chase Cloggers too. Oh, yeah. They they had a show just before we started playing with them. They had done a show with a with a uh, with an African American step troupe. Yeah. Mm. And so like the what I'm saying is that, like the the mold was already there. Yeah. Like there was already already this recognition in the community. This just does, this stuff doesn't exist in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly we know the history of clogging is not white. You know, it has a lot of African influence. So I think it's I think it's cool that you are like Af- not African American, but actually African influence on the clogging, and uh, I think it's just it's a living art form. Yeah. I'm sorry, you were talking. Oh, sorry. If you if you look up uh, videos, hip hop clogging, you'll find it, and it's just fantastic. 
Oh, it's, oh my word. Yeah. So I see a lot weird. of videos that are just, they inspire me to, if I can't do that step, I'll make something up that's similar, mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. that works, something I can actually do. Were you, were you nervous the first time you pulled out that your little board and started moving like that in front yeah, of people? I, I really was. You know, I practiced at home. Quillen, for my birthday that year, he bought me... Um, Christmas. Was it? No, it was birthday. Oh. Facebook reminds me every year. <laughs> 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 That's how I remember things, Facebook memories. Um, but he got me the board, he got me the shoes, and I would practice at home. I think six months I practiced and practiced and practiced, and finally... It was at um, Delano's. Delano's that I pulled it out, that really tiny stage. And I had a hard time because I was listening to everything. And then I realized I just need to listen to one thing. And I, so I ended up just focusing on Quillen's banjo. And I don't know. Well, it's because that's what you've been practicing to yeah. with the banjo. So I just had to whoosh, put on my blinders and go with that. Oh, my gosh. It adds a lot to your show. How many people yeah. are in your band right now? Uh, Depends. Depends. There are nine. There are nine of us that, like, if we have the full band, there'll be nine of us on a Monday, the 3-3-1. And then within that nine, we've got two, we're working with two or three different bass players right now. uh, Because our our longtime bass player, Eric Paulson, retired last year at the end of uh, 2022. But yeah, there's there's nine. So we've got Kim and I, and I've got bass, and then David Robinson plays acoustic guitar. And Jake Johnson plays fiddle. Uh, Rich Rue plays steel guitar. Dave Gustafson, Gustafson plays mandolin. Adam Wurzfeld plays the musical saw. And Eric Brandt, who you know from church, Eric Brandt plays accordion with us now. Eric's been with us since the pandemic. Mm-hmm. He, he recorded on two or three songs for the record that we're putting out now. And then it just, I always liked Eric was so fun to play with in the Bloodwash band, and he's just such a good guy. And we so, didn't sit next to each other. You do, do you make each other laugh? We might. Giggle. We might. <laughs> he is such a, a good guy. He's a bad influence on yeah. me. Is he? Yes. Eric Brandt is a bad influence on Kim Rowe. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Um, this album that you're putting out, is it coming out soon? You said? I would hope so. It's been done for a year and a half. It has. And it's, it's just, it's been... You know, the, the, the pandemic has messed everything up you know, from, like, if we were printing physical albums, actual LPs, like, the wait time on LPs is 18 months now. And that's not what's holding us up, but it's, it's, it's an example of just kind of how everything is just mm-hmm. backlogged. And it, there's no bad actors in it. It's just... Yeah, just, just not stuff. happy. Yeah. And so that's, we're going to have to wait to see the video until that comes out. Is that true? Hopefully the video comes out beforehand as, as promo. Yeah. Have you seen it? Have they finished with it? We've seen uh, bits and pieces. I we think. saw an early cut. Writer, yeah. the director, Ryder Sealer, had an early cut, and that was really good. And he said, there's just a couple more changes I want to make, and then uh, life. Yeah. You know, he just had some stuff. and, and He's so good at what he does. Like like you, uh, volunteering your time as an extra, everybody there was a volunteer. Mm-hmm. So the director, the camera crew, all we paid for was the food to feed everybody. Wow. I know. It was it was. And that was stunning. like a professional yeah. setup with all the cameras and things yes. and the lights. It was, and it was so fun. So there is no part of me at all that feels comfortable saying, hey, where's that video? If you get that video done, it's like... 
we didn't mm-hmm. pay a, a nickel no. for it. Everyone mm-hmm. donated their time, yeah. so it takes because as long they love as it, you yeah. guys so much. And it was like the it was so much fun to be there that day because I hadn't seen like Molly Mayer and Alyssa and all these people in so long. It was way b- years, so it was, it was so much so fun. Overwhelming to be on stage and just see everyone out there, and it just almost almost everyone there, almost all the uh, and this we did on purpose. Almost almost everybody in the audience was, you know, a, a peer. An art, an art peer of ours, and we wanted we wanted to stack it with. The hope was that you know, in recognizing the importance of Loretta Lynn to to well to society, but to music in general, that like we could do a little bit of the same by recognizing all of the women in our community in the Twin Cities. And so, you know, for everybody that was there, there was three times as many that we had asked that just couldn't do it for various reasons. Um, oh, the thing that I was really tickled about is that we would hear from from some of the people there, oh, thank you so much for yeah. inviting me and this other person because we connected and we're going to collaborate on something. It just oh. felt really good. Yeah, That's it was, it really was, cool. It was super yeah. cool. Did, did you write that song, Kim? Or did you work, work down together? It's a great song. It's so thank fun. Thank you. Well, do you guys write together? Do you write a lot of the music? It's it's mostly Quinn. It's mostly me, but I don't feel like that's that's fair to say because Kim, when well, I'll come up with with something. I'll come up with a, an idea or a story, and I'll just say, "Okay, go." But <laughs> you you do that, but you also write. You know, she'll actually write out words, and mm-hmm. I'll change it. But most of the what I'm changing isn't because it's bad. It's just to make it fit. Uh, mm-hmm the uh, rhythm or something because often you don't have a melody you have a you have a lyric structure but not a melody and so you know massage stuff to make it fit into a melody and also I, you're very good at arranging like the new stuff we've been working on you've been doing a lot of arranging and you're like what about what if we try this you know let's put a stop here let's have this part be louder and that part more quiet and that's not that's not how i think you know again going back to that that punk background like for me everything it's like that old uh, Soul Asylum record, Loud Fast Rules. It's like everything, uh, everything all the time. Just like I was the only one writing songs. Every song would be fast and it would not have any dynamics in it. It would just be loud the whole time. <laughs> I think a lot of the dynamic stuff that I come up with is because because I was in choir. Mm, yeah. A lot of the arranging just, yeah. Yep, there's a triple P coming. You got to soften this up, right? <laughs> you sing in choir in, during yeah. high school? Yep. What is, I don't college. even know what that means. Isn't that soft, soft, soft? If you, there's like three P's. Oh, the P, the piano, right? Yes. P is piano? Uh-huh. Pianissimo. Pianissimo? Pianissimo. Oh, that sounds dirty. It does. <laughs> Are you traveling a lot this summer? Are you going to festivals? and? Yeah. Not as much as we would like. Yeah. We are. We've got, you know, June, we're down in Missouri, and then we're down in Iowa. We had some stuff out in Indiana that that fell through. I was bummed about that. It's still it's still pandemic in, mm-hmm. in the booking world. It's really interesting. It's, it's not coming back in the same way quite no. yet. I think some people are still a little bit nervous about having shows inside still. Mm. You had said before, you're like, I would hate if my girls are musicians. And I know part of it, you're joking, but is it really, do you, are you happy that you've chosen this current to be in? Is it, is it cha- really challenging for you? I can't imagine doing anything else mm-hmm. at this point. It's been, this is 12 years that we've done it full time. Um, I was just talking about this with one, with one of my other bands that's, it's similar that it's a lot of long-term full-time musicians and the idea of working for someone else at this point would be pretty ridiculous. 
not that I wouldn't do it. I mean, you got to feed your family and that's, that is the first rule. And so during the pandemic, we both were looking at, at if, if the CARES Act hadn't gone through and we hadn't been able to, to get um, unemployment insurance, we, we both were looking at, you know, I mean, we were like opening the paper and looking for work. I mean, it yeah. was, what can we do? Because you've got to provide for your family. Um, it's hard. We haven't touched on this yet, but I'm writing a book. I'm writing a graphic novel uh, called How to Be a Musician. And it's literally, it's the book that I wish, I wish that I had had when we quit our jobs, you know, because you have, I had as a younger man, I had all these expectations of what being a full-time musician was, and then there's the reality of it. And one of the things that I'm writing about is something that I, I mentioned to you privately earlier, is that I, I have a very strong belief that the same thing that makes us creative people in any genre, in any type, you know, dance, writing, sculpture, music, painting, mosaics, that that is intimately related to mental health issues, that that artists are broken. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know, you know, and I struggle with my, with depression and my, my mental health all the time. But I was, so I've been talking to a lot of other artists about this, this theory. Do you agree with this? What do you think? Like, what's your take on it? And most people, I would say 98% of people agree, just no qualifications just yeah we're all we all have mental illness and and that's just part of what makes us creative but my friend barb brinstead who's a wonderful bass player and who's been doing this longer than i have she said it's a chicken and egg thing is it is it um that the thing the mental illness is what feeds our creativity or is related to our creativity or does the mental illness come as a result of a life in the arts? Because so much of what we're doing is rejection. Like there's there's so much about um, the the Rowe family has been incredibly lucky. Like we, you know, on my depressive days, all I can see are the bad things. But in reality, you know, we we signed to a small label. We've got we've got um, we've got six seven albums out. We still, man, people still come see us for free at the 331 after 18 years. Like we play every Monday night and people still show up. You know, that's, that's something to be thankful for. We've been doing this how long for just, just this? Is it uh, 12 years? 12 years. Do you still enjoy it? Does it still fire you up? And sometimes, sometimes I get really tired. And then what gets me motivated is that people, people don't want to see a tired mom on stage. So I better just, you know, suck it up. Just get up there. Just do it so I get excited. So Showbiz! <laughs> hey! So Barb was, Barb was saying that, you know, which it's, it's chicken and the egg. You know, are we drawn to it because we have, because, because of the mental illness? Or do, is our a mental illness uh, uh, exasperated by doing this? Because even given the success that we've had, um, we haven't won a Grammy. You know, we haven't, um, there are festivals that it feels like everybody gets into that we don't get into. There are festivals that are big festivals that we used to play at quite a bit and we don't anymore and we can't even get to return our calls. So there's, there's always this feeling of, of rejection. And we certainly have all played that show where you're playing to three people or maybe you're playing to a full room, but nobody cares. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's hard. You know, that I saw a thing from uh, the actor uh, Seth Rogen the other day, and he was talking about bad reviews on his movies. And he says, I don't care who you are, a bad review hurts. 
And it was really refreshing to hear someone at his level admit that because it is something that we all face. I mean, those those shows where nobody cares, that hurts. You know, it's like we're out here doing our best and it's not good enough. I mean, you, your therapist would say, sure, it's good enough. But in fact, the, what it feels like is it's not. And so Barb's point was, do we do this because creativity and mental illness are are related at the core or do we do or is one fed by the other somehow and I had never thought about it that way because my personal experience has always been I've always had mental illness I've always had depression and I've always been an artist so I just assumed you know one and one made two but I think you know Barb has a really good point Hmm. so the original question would you want your kids to do this that's why I hesitate you know Hmm. it's like do you want to there's we chose to leave our jobs it was a it was a conscious decision because we had two kids and and we wanted to show them that there is more to life than working in a cubicle and i was already home with the girls and it was uh, but what really helped to make that jump though was the McKnight. Uh, mcknight fellowship but even without that validation and that and and that financial support the it was a decision that we made and what we thought of as ethical just as parents, you know, we do have, being white middle-class people, we have some advantages, and it would be, it would be immoral, I think, to deny that, number one, be like, oh, no, it's even playing field, that's not true, and, and, but also to then, I don't know, immoral, not anymore, I don't think immoral to not pursue it, but it's, it's a missed opportunity, certainly, to not pursue that opportunity and that's mm-hmm. what we decided we yep. said you know if we don't if we don't just take this leap what are we teaching our kids you know mm-hmm. don't follow your dreams and so we we did give ourselves uh what was it like a five year i think that was it something like that you know let's let's take a look at how we're doing in five years well, i think it was a year for i was think it, it was just it, how are we doing at the end of this this fellowship year and then and then five years there was and there are still days where i wake up and i think i'm quitting I am gonna go look at. The, I'm gonna look at the one ends, and I'm gonna get a job because I can't. I can't bear this anymore. I hmm. can't. I can't handle the rejection, and uh, you know because there's because so many of us, uh, we're our own bookers. We are our own bookers in the Rowe family, but that's very consistent throughout the music industry these days. And and you know, the booking industry is hard. There's there's either no response or there's. Uh, there's a response that says no, or there's a response that says yes, but we're only going to pay. You. They will only want to pay you, you know, some insulting amount of money to do to do what you do. So it's it's hard. Well, I wonder too, Quillen. Though, where would your mental illness be if you weren't making it? If you didn't have that creative outlet at all, where you sit at your yeah. table and are doing your artwork or you're playing together? I mean, where would you be then? I think it would be far worse. I mean, I don't struggle. With depression, I I do think it's hard to not get grants and to not have a ton of money flowing all the time. Or I mean, that part is, mm-hmm. or comparing yourself to other people or where they're at and like, how does that person do that? But the creative process is the only thing that's like consistently life giving. Mm-hmm. You know, where I couldn't not do it, even if I mean, I could work another job. I do. I substitute teach or I do this to fill in. But it's the one. Thing that I know I'm going to get joy out of mm-hmm. in my life. I don't know. Where, where would you be if you didn't have those outlets? I wonder. 
That's a good question. Dead in a ditch, probably, <laughs> at this point. You said that you're making a practice of drawing or making music every day. Mm-hmm. And do you have you found some relief through that process of yes. dedicating yourself? Yes, absolutely. You know, it's it's easy to get out of practice. It's easy to get out of the practice of practicing when you are as busy as we try to stay uh, because you're working all the time. And so sitting down and practicing feels like work. And um, and as you just so eloquently said, it's not. It's joy. It absolutely is joy. Yeah, that's And I had forgotten that. And so I don't know what triggered it, but I just have decided to start doing it again. And it started with wanting, uh, I'd mentioned that I had a therapist that had me doing a gratitude journal where mm. I just literally every day I just write down as many things as I can think of that I'm thankful for. And it's hard at first. I'm a glass half empty kind of person. Doing that is hard, but I found as I keep doing it, it's easier. And so I said, all right, I'm already in this sketchbook. I'm just going to, I'm going to make myself draw a page a day. Uh, it becomes a habit. And, and it is, it is, it is, uh, I don't know if it gives joy or even life. I mean, it probably does, and I just don't identify it that way. That's not the language that I use for it. Mm-hmm. But it certainly is, it's it's like going to the gym or meditating. I feel better having done it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's not every day I want to go to the gym or exercise or go for a walk. But I never get done with it and say, well, that was a waste of time. No, I love never. watching you draw. I really do. I love just looking up and just seeing you draw in your, in your sketchbook. The thing that I really that gets me really excited is that our daughters have sketchbooks and they will either draw with him in his sketchbook or they just have their own and they'll just lay right next to him. They don't do the, they don't work in my book anymore. My older sketchbooks when they were younger, it's wonderful. You know, I'd I'd have a page and they'd be drawing next to me. It was, I really like that. Those are treasures. Oh, very much so. But, but Oni in particular still keeps a, Mm -hmm. a daily sketchbook. And And they, they both are. They don't get their art from me. <laughs> do you have true. any practices that you do every day, um, Kim? I organize. I clean. Mm-hmm. I love organizing. Organizing is my art, I guess. It is. <laughs> oh my gosh! I wish your art. I, I wish I had more of that. <laughs> I don't. I don't have have sculptures, and I. I just there it is for you. I have. I guess I. Yeah, I just organize and. Mm-hmm. It's a sickness, really. It is not. <laughs> I disagree. Well, so you're an artist and creator. Do you feel? Are you pulled in the depressive nature of things? Are you naturally an optimistic person? I How was it for you? Try to be optimistic. It's 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 so easy to be to be pulled in that that pessimistic view. But I I, I try. Mm-hmm. Some days are easier than others. You yes. you are much better at it than I am, honestly. We make a good team. Yes, I agree. <laughs> so now when you initially was like, oh, I don't want to make music with my wife. I don't I don't see that going well. You've done it for so long. Is it life-giving to your relationship? Oh, Is yeah. It, yeah. I can't even, when I sing without Kim, it sounds wrong. Like that is my, that's not my voice mm-hmm. anymore. M- mm-hmm. My voice is half. And it's, it's uh I'm an only child, and I I will freely admit that I was a very self-centered person until I met Kim. And he shares his fries with me now. Oh, he does. Well, that was an issue. Honey, she, she's joking. She makes it a joke, but there was literally a time we were. I don't remember. It was you know, the tenth time we'd eaten together, and she kept taking my fries. <laughs> and I got mad. I was like, "Stop eating my fries!" And she literally said to me, as kindly as she could be, she said, "Hey, it's okay. You can share your fries." 
Mm-hmm. She didn't get mm-hmm. mad at me back. She just said it's okay to share your fries. And I know that sounds well, so... I'm the youngest of, of three kids, so... It sounds so stupid, but it was it literally... <laughs> that was the eye-opening moment. I was like, I'm an asshole. <laughs> I'm kind of selfish. Is it easier for you to share your fries now? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, especially when you're a parent. Well, so Okay, so here in my defense, only child, but also... In Accident Clearinghouse, we didn't have, I love this story, we didn't have, you know, none of us had money in Accident Clearinghouse because mm-hmm. we were all young musicians. And Mike was the youngest or second youngest of like six or seven. So, you know, Mike's experience in mealtime was like you grabbed food and you ate it uh-huh. because it would be gone. And so we would buy meals together in Accident Clearinghouse and Jeff and I would be like eating and Mike would be devouring it would just be like, you know, you can't see this. My hands, it's like hungry, hungry hippos. And then there'd be, and there'd be nothing left. And Jeff and I would be, you know, looking at this empty plate, and Mike would be like, yeah, rubbing his belly, and he'd be, he'd be fine. And <laughs> That's so, so hilarious. It just, it was. Yeah, it, he had to fend for himself. Yes, exactly. Yeah. What do you guys dream? Are you dreaming about anything? This new album eventually coming out. Your book that you're working on. Is there anything that you're working towards as a band or hoping for? Or? Are you just taking it a day at a time? And well, for me, I'm just, you got to do one day at a time. Otherwise, you're going to go nuts. See, she's the positive one. <laughs> I, I, uh. It's easier to look at the, at the, um, the, the smaller things that make up the big picture. Because if you just look at the big picture, you don't see the small things. And you just see the big picture and that you're either failing or succeeding. But if you look at the small things, you can see that you're making your way towards the big picture. Mm-hmm. I like that. Mm-hmm. I like that too. I've always been a long-term person, mm-hmm. and so, you know, I I want a Grammy. I mm-hmm. want a Grammy. I want people to know who we are. Mm-hmm. We were nominated. We were we were nominated to be nominated. Nominated, yes. That's yes. pretty big deal. That's folks. It was, and the and what was what was great about that was that. It showed me that it was possible. Mm-hmm. Like we didn't make it onto the ballot, but we got onto the ballot for the ballot. And I know that sounds like splitting hairs, and I'm not, it's not a brag. It's like just knowing that we had some pathway to that mm-hmm. was 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 eye opening. It's like okay, so that's that is now a possibility. Yeah. Like it was never even a possibility before because we had never had anything register on any charts or anything, and all of a sudden this was this was this door that opened. And then we had. Uh... Don't worry about the rich man. One, two, three. Single, don't worry about the rich man stayed on the charts for like a year and a half on the bluegrass charts which was nuts and actually was number 10 overall for 2020 or 2021 see all those little things absolutely and like they were this is a brag in in that year and a half there were artists that are much bigger than us that like popped up on the charts and would like knock us down for for a week or something and then they'd be gone and we'd still be there Woohoo! You guys, I know. You have to that's a big deal. It is. It is a big deal. I mean it really it felt really good and not the 
not beating other people felt good. No. The longevity of it felt good because it's, it's we recognition. We never thought we'd be there, and there yeah. we were. And after, I don't even know how long, we just, every time I would look on the charts and I'd see our name, I would just kind of laugh because, like, how, how oh, are still we here. still here? Yeah. Oh, that is so, that's really cool. But, I remember, I just had this one story of being on the back of something. I made this Obama mural and I went to this gallery and I had made this huge mosaic and everyone from a different state made a mosaic and we made a huge mural about it. I'd be in this gallery that they're having in Denver for the Democratic Convention but no one invited me and no one would return my calls either. I'm like, I'm going. I'm going there and I drove it down there and Shepard Ferry, um, he was putting on the show and I walked in there and I was like, I have this mural. It's in the back of my car. I want to be a part of your show. And he's like, oh, there's space on the back of my wall. So um, he had his huge Obama, you know, the Obama image. On the back image. of his wall? Yeah. That's a big deal to be on the back, be on the ballot for the ballot or be on the back of someone else's wall that like they had, someone had to walk around the other side of it eventually. I'm like, it is a big deal. Those little teeny things. That... He didn't have to do that either. Yeah. No, well, actually it was his. It was his person working for him. Oh, <laughs> it wasn't but, still. but still, they didn't have to. No, yeah. they didn't. So I know. It's a big deal. Those little teeny nods from the they universe that are like, up. yeah, yeah, see, you're still here. See, try again. Keep going. They all stack up. I think the Loretta Lynn Blues video is going to go everywhere. It's pretty fun. Like, the first <laughs> cut of it was, was a lot of fun to see. can't wait to see that. Well, I'm so grateful for what you guys do in this world. I think it's neat. Thank you. A gift to our, it's a gift to everyone who knows you and gets to see you play all the time. And there was one show that Paige and I were playing the same night you guys were at some, what's the theater right down from the 331? The, uh, the Ritz. The Ritz. The Ritz. There was somehow some mercy thing mm -hmm. there. And the, I remember whoever wrote about it was like, oh, the music was great. No one else mattered except for what yeah. you guys were doing there that night because you put on the best show ever and i'll remember that forever i'm like i think we sounded okay but we didn't put on a show <laughs> we're boring like standing there probably my hands tucked behind my back but you guys are the best no thank you that's embarrassing i think i have the kids <laughs> i think i have the kids to uh thank for my for my stage presence because i wore them on my back or the front and when we used to sit down i couldn't wear them if I was sitting down so sometimes I'd be the only one standing up besides the bass player and all of a sudden we all ended up standing up because if you're if you have a baby on your back or your front and they need to fall asleep you need to rock you oh need yeah to move, and all of a sudden they weren't there anymore but I was still moving and I'm still moving oh that's <laughs> a really beautiful yeah. picture I love it so much well keep on plugging along you guys I'm, I want to see you get that Grammy Thank you. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. You're you're on your way. I think. <laughs> it's it's you know a life in the arts is hard. You, you've been doing it. You know you've been making music and you've been making your murals and there are there are those times where you just feel like uh, thrown I mean, in the towel. Yeah, we've been doing this for so it's 20 years. We've been doing it full time for 12. We've been playing for 20, and there's a there's there's that you said earlier angie you talked about you know you compare yourself to other people why are they doing this and i'm not that and you know there's definitely those moments where it's like well maybe after 20 years we should be further along or something or we should be more financially secure or we should be able to get into those festivals but, but some people are there already because right time you know right right mm -hmm. sure right Mm -hmm. right? right time, right yeah. place. Yeah, 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 the right time, the right place. Yeah. And as I said earlier, we've had lots of amazing opportunities. So 
And they're, keep them coming. I hope so. You two are so great. I'm so grateful for your time. I'm going to make you sing with me.